just to give you a heads up, next Sunday we're going to start a three-sermon series, I guess, on the principles for 2020. And uh, next Sunday we're going to talk about the path principle from Proverbs 7 and 8. So if you want to read those two chapters in the next week, kind of get you the idea where we're going and what we're talking about, uh, we'll be all set for next week. But this morning we're talking about the white Christmas that we've already mentioned. It's one of those deals as we look at Luke chapter 1, verses uh, 57 through 79. It's about when John the Baptist was uh, going to be born. And he was born, and they went, took him to the temple to be circumcised, and they were going to call him Zechariah, but his mother stepped up and said, no, his name will be John. So John the Baptist was born, and he goes through and gives a prophecy that God allowed him to give, not only about Jesus, but about his own son and what he was going to do in the world. But the song, White Christmas, you know, you remember it. You probably heard it this year. Uh, you probably sang it, I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas just like the ones I used to know, where the treetops glisten and children listen to hear sleigh bells in the snow. It says, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas with every Christmas card I write. May your days be merry and bright, and may all your Christmases be white. White Christmas and the song White Christmas started in the United States and back in 1942, sung by Bing Crosby. In fact, it was so popular, it had to be re-recorded on the vinyl because the first sets were so played so much, they were wore out. But you see, at that time when this song came out, it was actually written for our men and women overseas because the United States has just gone to war. And so this song became very popular with that. And then we found ourselves, I think what I read, in a very confusing and unstable world where loved ones are being shipped overseas to fight in that war to that battlefront, not knowing if their families would ever come home again. And so this song had a powerful impact on the world of the day, especially the army soldiers or the military men and women, because they dreamt of a white Christmas when they could come home again. And when that white Christmas would happen, then all would be merry and bright. So you can kind of see how this song made a big difference in people's lives of the day and just the hope of family coming home. But for centuries in our text, the Jews had dreamt of their own white Christmas because you have to realize for centuries and centuries there have been these promises of the predicted coming Messiah. And that Messiah would bring salvation to his people. He would bring this forgiveness that they were looking for of their sins. He would be the light and peace to those who were of God's people. So he was very much looked forward. So the Jews were looking forward to a time when life would be merry and bright once again, once Jesus came back. Isaiah predicted that when that day come, which we read early in verse 18, Isaiah says, though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And you have to kind of picture all that going together. Through Isaiah... God has declared that there would be a white Christmas for his people. That there would be a day and there would come a day when their lives would be cleansed white as snow. And we understand that, I hope. That at that day when we accept Christ and we're baptized and our sins are washed away, we are now white as snow. And we understand our lives will be changed forever. But remember, over the centuries, the Jews watched for this Messiah. And you have to remember the story, and you read back through it. They waited, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited. And they waited so long 
that they actually started to wonder if Jesus was really going to come. That if, if this Messiah was actually going to show up, they became a people so filled with despair at that time, they were literally living in darkness in the shadow of death. In fact, there's an old hymn that we sing, a Christmas hymn, that talks about the Jews in the shadow of death. It's a song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It says, In ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here, until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. They were singing the song in hopes and in waiting for this coming Messiah. So when the angel appeared to Zechariah in our text, Zechariah was initially skeptical about this message he got from this angel. I mean, he's been one that's been waiting for years and years and years also for this coming Messiah. But when Zechariah fully understood the significance of this unborn's uh, life, and especially even his son's life and ministry, he knew his son was going to herald in this long-promised Messiah. He was going to go before Jesus and proclaim the coming of Jesus. And as a result, God allowed Zechariah to make this prophecy, to declare this promise, not only about his son's ministry, but about the Messiah who was finally going to change the lives of God's people. So when we think about white Christmas, I know we don't always get a white Christmas, and sometimes, like this year, it's been a green Christmas, it's been a warm Christmas. When I got up this morning, I checked the weather, and it said 61 degrees. I put the long sleeve shirt away, got the short sleeve shirt out. You know, I didn't expect to be preaching in a short sleeve golf shirt the Sunday after Christmas. You know, so we don't always get this white Christmas that we often dream of. Let me ask you this. How was this Messiah going to change people's lives? How was he going to do it? Well, for one thing, Jesus came down from heaven to shine his light into the darkness. The darkness of our world, the darkness of our lives. To bring light where there was no light. In fact, John 8, 12 declares this. He says, I am the light of the world, talking about Jesus. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life referring to Christ. And again in Luke 1, 57 through 79, Zechariah tells us this. He says, That because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. You see, he was to shine a light into the dark world that those who were living in that darkness. But how did he accomplish this? How did Jesus shine his light into our lives? And I want you to understand, I realize there's a lot of different ways we could approach this, that we could address this. But I think one of those ways that occurred to me as I read was that we have to look at life a little bit different. We have to look at the way we live our lives a little bit different. When Jesus shines the light, in Ephesians 4, 17 through 20, Paul writes this. He says, so I tell you this. And insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Guess what he says? You, however did not come to know Christ that way. We as believers 
Didn't come to know Christ that way. So understand this. In your outline, it says this. Without Christ, people live lives that are often darkened in their understanding. That we don't understand exactly what we're supposed to do. We don't quite understand completely what God wants us to do. We don't quite understand what's expected of us as believers and as Christians and maybe even as a church. That we have to have a different understanding when God shines that light into our lives. You see, in his teaching, and once we come to know Christ, we think differently than the world thinks. Because we're no longer of the world, we're of Christ. And in his, in his teachings, Jesus told us, you know, these different things, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not covet, do not do all these things. And he does do all that. But Jesus was basically telling people, change how you live your life. Change how you look at life. Refuse to live lives filled with bitterness, lust, and selfishness. He says, don't behave like those whose hearts are darkened by those things. But catch what he's wanting us to understand. Live lives that reflect the light and peace I want to create in you. That Jesus wants to create in us. Not maybe exactly what we want all the time or what other people think we should be doing, but what Christ desires in us. And what we can do. Now there are people who believe that, that that was all Jesus came to do. To say you can do this and you can't do that. In fact, there's a lot of people who say all Jesus wants to do is tell you what you can't do. You know, and they give you this list of stuff. And the Jews believed that. They had all these rules, over 600 laws that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. You know, I don't think you need all these things written down on paper of do's and don'ts because we have God's word. He says, do, don't do these things, but live this way. And if we do and we understand it, God gives us so much more. See, they believe Jesus only came to teach how to live. But Zechariah says, no, the Messiah had another task. Jesus had another task in his coming. Luke 177 says this. He says, Jesus came to give knowledge of salvation and to his people through the forgiveness of their sins. To give knowledge of salvation to give us that hope of heaven, to give us eternal life. You see, a lot of people in today's world have this warped view of salvation. They kind of view this salvation as a do-it-yourself project. In other words, if I do all these good things, or if I help the old lady across the street, or if I do all these other things, then God will be happy with me and I will go to heaven. But it doesn't work that way. Back in 1988, a little after midnight, it was out in California. A young lady was driving on an overpass and crossed over a bridge, lost control, broke through the barrier, and was dangling on the side of the bridge. I actually remember this story. It took over two hours, 25 firefighters and volunteers working to get her free from that car back up on the road safely. One firefighter said, in those two hours, she kept saying the same thing over and over again. Now, remember, she's dangling over a high bridge. She kept saying, I'll do it myself. I'll do it myself. Now, if you see the picture, if you ever watch the video of that, you know there's no way she's going to do it herself. There's so many times I hear people say, well, I'll just do it myself. I'll take care of it. I can do this by myself. And a few weeks later, I want to ask them, how'd it go? How'd that work out for you? Because you know it couldn't have worked out well. 
And we do the same thing with salvation. We do the same thing with God. We put God on that shelf until we need him, or we put church on that shelf until we need the church, or we do all these other things. Why? Because we can do it ourselves. We don't need anybody else. And you know what? Us may be one thing. But folks, we can't do life without God. We can't do life without Jesus in our life. Lots of people look at their life and they look at their sins like a balance sheet. And so many times their lives are plunged over that edge, but they keep saying, I can do it myself. I don't need God or anyone else to help me. But the repeated message of the scriptures of the Bible is this. It won't work that way. It doesn't end well that way. Heaven can't be bought. It's a free gift from God. We've talked about that last few weeks. That what God offers is a free gift. And he says, I want you just as you are. If you'll allow me to take you where I want you to be. So understand, people have a hard time accepting the idea that God would give them anything free. And we just can't accept that. It's hard for us to think that this hope of heaven, this hope of eternal life, this hope of forgiveness to be white as snow is something that's free. Because what I found out in the past, if something is free, a lot of people won't show up. We could have a concert at this church. It could be one of the best groups. And we say, it's free for anybody. And very few people will show up. You charge 30 bucks a person. People complain about the price. But the place is full. Because they can't believe anything free is going to be good. You see, the knowledge of salvation must include the idea of our receiving forgiveness from God for our sins. Unless our sins are forgiven, we won't get to heaven. We have to understand that. No matter how nice you may be, no matter how moral we may live, and like I said, no matter how, how many old ladies you help across the street, or how many ducks, or how many kittens, or how many dogs, you know, it doesn't matter. God spent centuries teaching the people the need for sacrifices to bring forgiveness of sins. Back in the Old Testament, man, they sacrificed birds and sheep and goats and cattle. And the implied message was this. If you are going to be forgiving, forgiven, back in the Old Testament, something had to die. I mean, for the blood to be shed, something had to die for that forgiveness. You see, in Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 9.22 says the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Referring back to Old Testament. You see, for us to receive this forgiveness, the forgiveness that we're talking about, the salvation God wants to offer, something or someone had to die. And it's that simple. Isaiah declared that this would be the fate of the Messiah. Because he says this, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. He says this, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, Yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb to the slaughter. So you see, this song, White Christmas, declared that a person's life would be changed by a chance winter storm. 
That when these men and women finally came home through their families, that this winter storm, this white Christmas was going to mean everything was good again. They were home from the war. They were safe. Family and friends was around. Now the snow was coming down. We have a white Christmas and we're celebrating. But the Bible tells us that our lives could only be changed by the deliberate act of Jesus. Not a chance storm. Not a chance happening that Jesus died on the cross. But by deliberate action. You see, this world looks for satisfaction in all kinds of places. We look for satisfaction from our possessions and our relationships, maybe parties, even on what if the weather is just perfect or just right for us to enjoy, whether bright sunshine or white snow, it all determines whether we're going to be happy or not. But the problem is all those solutions are so short-lived. You know, we can look at all those things and, yeah, a white Christmas may have been nice. It may have been pretty. It may have meant we could got out and played in the snow. But it's short-lived. It's just for a moment. Jesus warned us not to put our treasures in things where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and destroy. Don't put our trust in those things. But we put our trust in Jesus Christ. I've used this before, but someone once observed, if our greatest need in life was pleasure, God would have sent an entertainer. If our greatest need was money, he would have sent a financial consultant. If our greatest need had been information, he would have sent an educator. If God, in his infinite wisdom, knew that our greatest need was forgiveness, so he sent his son to die for us. But the satisfaction Jesus could offer us goes goes way beyond anything we could ever imagine. So how do we get this satisfaction? How do we get this idea that we're going to trust Jesus and how we're going to live our life and he's going to take us from where we want to be to where he wants us to be? How do we do it? It's really pretty simple. Scripture says, first, we believe. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess. We repent. We're baptized. We receive that gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, that's the gift that he offers. That's the gift that he wants us to have. He wants us to enjoy life, yes. He wants us to enjoy life to the abundant, actually. But only if it's in him. Because we could have all the things of the world, and without Jesus, we have absolutely nothing. 